0: take first watch hello welcome to all new two-part episode of the first watch podcast this is the second part i'm zach and i'm back with cole hey how are you
1: i'm good how about you
0: i'm doing great and we're here to talk about Oz move Moulin Rouge as a follow-up to our conversation about his latest release, Elvis, which is now playing in theaters. How's, how's mm-hmm. Elvis doing? I haven't looked at its box office lately.
1: Just hit 80 million domestic, so 100 million at least is locked and loaded, so it's going to yeah. do pretty well.
0: I think that's the most exciting thing that you can go see in a theater right now. If you're just Johnny moviegoer hitting up the AMC on a Saturday afternoon, it's the most exciting mm-hmm. thing you can go watch, in my opinion.
1: Yeah, I mean, come on, it's got to be better than minions. And does anyone actually want to see Thor, or is everyone under a contractual obligation at this point?
0: <laughs> I saw that, like, one of the more notorious blue checky Marvel fan pundits posted that he saw it four times. And I just, why would you see Thor, Love, and Thunder four times? What mysteries did the first three times not unravel? <laughs> Yeah, we're following up Jurassic season with, yeah, Minions, with Thor 4, I don't know. Have you seen anything good lately?
1: Um, I did, actually. Um, I saw the new feature from A24, Marcel the Shell, with Shoes on. This is a feature-length adaptation of the short videos by Jenny Slate that were uploaded around 2010. And then they became extremely internet popular and even became a children's book. And now it's a feature film. Uh, It's about Marcel, who's a little shell. He's about one inch tall. He's got shoes, of course. And he's also got one little eye, and he's the most adorable little thing in the world. He lives with his grandmother, Connie, who's voiced by Isabella Rossellini, of all people, turning in a genuinely great vocal performance. They live in this house all by themselves, and they used to have an entire extended family there. Uh, Other shells, there's even like, if I remember right, there's like, tampons and Cheez-Its and Cheetos and pretzels, like all kinds of little tiny inanimate objects all living together as a community. But all of them, except for Marcel and Connie, got swept away when the couple who were living in that house broke up and the man stormed out of the house and emptied his sock drawer into his suitcase, which is where everyone is supposed to hide during a human fight. So now they live by themselves and someone new moves into the house. They meet Dean who's played by Dean Fleischer-Camp who directed the film and also directed those original shorts as well. And so he starts just making little videos about Marcel. Like what does Marcel do to get around the house? How does he get food for him and his grandmother? What kind of home life does he have? And you see like all these super funny and inventive ways of living when you're only an inch tall. For example, to get around the house, he goes inside a tennis ball and rolls himself around. And the videos start becoming extremely popular on YouTube. Marcel becomes an internet celebrity. And so he thinks that he could try to use this to find his long lost family. What I will say is that this is probably far and away one of the best things to come out of the so-called nicecore movement, if only because it's got a genuine underlayer of snark and bittersweetness to it. Honest to God, I was laughing like every two minutes.
0: From the way that you describe it, it almost sounds a little bit like Forky from Toy Story 4.
1: Yeah, there's definitely a little bit of that in there.
0: I have to say, like, you coming out, not just saying, hey, this was a nice movie and I enjoyed it, but, like, that you strongly enjoyed it. I wouldn't say that it shocked me, but it made me think, (laughs) okay, I might need to see this. Because of all the people that I know, no one is harder to move with just, like, pure sweetness and sentimentality than you. So I was like, all right. There's got to be something a little bit more going on here.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, if Paddington can do absolutely nothing for me, then the fact that this did tells you something. It expands into more theaters this Friday the 15th.
0: Yeah, that's actually the date that it's going to be dropping at Texas Theater. So I might have to get out and go see that. They're going absolutely nuts in July. Tomorrow they're doing sort of like a Texas double feature of *Giants* Mm -hmm. new 4K restoration. Next week they're actually doing... Robocop? Robocop's hey. single screening. Robocop's like classic <laughs> Dallas cinema. It's obviously like, you know, you watch the movie it's set in Detroit, but everything's filmed in Dallas. So at least for oh. me. I watch that one and I'm like, oh, hey, everything in here. This is Dallas. This is really cool. <laughs> Probably like James, our fallen Oz comrade who is who is out with COVID today and not joining us. Whenever he watches The Matrix, he's like, Oh yeah, this is just all Sydney. This is all just, you know, I know that place. I know this place. So yeah, they're showing RoboCop, which is both annual, but it's also sort of syncing up with Mad God getting its theatrical release. Mad God, which we talked about on that sort of top films of the year, No Way episode that we did. And that's also playing at the Texas Theater. So a little bit of a Phil tip nice. connection, of mm-hmm. course, doing the practical effects of RoboCop. Mad God's also, I think, now streaming on Shudder. Yes. Uh, and I just, I can't, I really want to encourage people to like, watch that. Marcel, anim- I mean, the shell is obviously a stop motion animated character. Is it an animated yes. movie? Are there human characters in it as well?
1: Oh, it's a live action with stop motion in it. Gotcha. Okay. So Marcel, Connie, and like all the rest of the tiny little inanimate objects are all um, stop motion.
0: Gotcha. So yeah, there's two different stop motion movies that may be playing in theaters or streaming now, streaming soon. And those types I, of projects, in my opinion, are really fucking important to support because fuck Lightyear. Mm-hmm. Well, everybody
1: already said that. I mean minions outgrossed it in one weekend.
0: And fuck minions too. It's just it's all illumination, DreamWorks, Pixar, blah, 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 blah. Marcel the Shell, Mad God. It's cool when there are sort of independent animated features because animation is an expensive, technically complicated mm-hmm. art that requires a lot of resources and the type of resources that really only big corporations can provide and so right. when you get the opportunity to go and support an independent <laughs> animated feature like either of those in a movie theater I, it's sort of like you gotta do it
1: I would say though probably don't do them as a double feature because <laughs> then you're gonna get like my neighbor Totoro Grave of the Fireflies level support clash
0: wonderful yeah. And then after RoboCop, they're actually showing Boz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet because Elvis is going to be playing at the hey. Texas theater finally. And so a nice. little bit of a little bit of a Baz Luhrmann support. They, they like to do that whenever there's sort of a new release showing other films from the same directors. So yeah. people can get out, go see Romeo and Juliet, which I probably haven't seen since uh, high school English class.
1: <laughs> same. God, it's been ages.
0: Yeah. So I'm really, I'm kind of looking forward to going to see that. Obviously, we talked about Elvis. We're here to talk about Moulin Rouge. Boz Lerman is a director that I find easy to get excited about. And just nobody really makes movies like he does. And getting to see them in a theater, getting to see them with a crowd, particularly a movie like Romeo and Juliet that I haven't seen in years and years, is just, it's, it's a lot of fun.
1: It's a key experience of theatrical movie going to see something as wild as the Lerman project.
0: You remember when I sent you that photo of them showing Moulin Rouge, but it was like a VIP-only event? One of the saddest moments of my year. That was Not so shady It really was. I believe that was when I saw Vortex. I think I was walking out from seeing Vortex. So, you know, of course, I'm already depressed from Gaspar Noé. <laughs> <laughs> I walk out, look up at the marquee. Moulin Rouge is playing? What? So I think that kind of moves us into the conversation. Boz Lerman's Moulin Rouge. One of the biggest, most dazzling movie musicals of the 21st century. I kind of, in a way, you can correct me if you think that there's a good example. It feels like the last big musical a little bit. It kicked off a wave of films throughout the 2000s, like Chicago. There were follow-ups, but there's something about the way that Baz Luhrmann approaches filmmaking. That so completely varies with what the musical is, what the movie musical can be visually.
1: Other musicals have tried to capture it, but they fail every single time just because they lack that magic touch.
0: It's both the style of the film. It's Baz Luhrmann. It's the cast. I think Mm -hmm. part of it is the soundtrack, which you can't divorce from Baz Luhrmann in any way. This is his pop music opus. It's the movie that only he really could have made probably the best jukebox musical that i can name
1: i mean there's not a lot of competition out there
0: certainly not and any competition that there is isn't this savvy doesn't have this many hitters all up and down the track listing the album the soundtrack opens with david bowie doing a nat king cole cover and that's also (laughs) how the film opens at least after those opening credits the uh, yeah. first memory that I have before I ever even saw it was probably single Lady
1: Marmalade. Uh, what a great song. Number one hit on the charts, smashed everywhere. I'm um, also probably the first time that I engaged with this movie as well as seeing the music video.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, where, so the, the the singers of that song, pink, little Kim. Cam- mm-hmm. Christina Aguilera. Mia. They're like as the diamond dogs, right? They're the can-can dancers.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's all burlesque.
0: When you watch the film, the scene that sort of where they drop that song is obviously it's very early on. And so that that song kind of being an introduction into the film is really appropriate because it's just right at the beginning. It's welcoming you into the Moulin Rouge. Here come all the can-can dancers. They're flooding the floor here to welcome you.
1: It sweeps you up into the world immediately.
0: Right off the bat, it's savvy to put together these different genres of R&B, hip hop, pop music, and then make a song that represents kind of bringing people into your circus
1: tent. And to remix a song that started off as someone else's, um, originally it's a Patty LaBelle song, and then to reinvigorate it with this new meaning. And that's
0: sort of one of the things that's going on all up and down the track list of songs. they are covers of other songs, you know, there's, there's pop music, being reincorporated into the period setting there's a big medley which i have a lot of things to say about because i just love that scene so much that's incorporating all these different artists all into one song and so nothing that you see in the movie is just sort of like hey we wrote a song and we sang a song and it was great everything is chopped and screwed creative reapplications and reincorporations of some of the biggest pop songs in the world while also mm-hmm. having these like, you know, kind of historical soul songs, just like we see all through Elvis, that there's this relationship between there's a period setting in Moulin Rouge. And we have these anachronistic songs that we may associate with the 80s, and 90s, and 2000s. And all along the way, there are these points of music and Baz's taking influences all across that timeline and then throwing them in your face in, mm-hmm. in an intricate weave where they're all connected together through the story.
1: And done with such precision that is hard to come by in a musical.
0: How Moulin Rouge starts, I think, is one of its most creative decisions. You have a red curtain, which of course is what mm-hmm. Moulin Rouge means in French. The red curtain <laughs> rises to reveal the 20th Century Fox logo, may it rest in peace. And we hear that yeah. fanfare as a conductor is standing on the stage and he's just fucking <laughs> going wild with it, right? I love whatever I watched. What did I watch recently? I watched The Leopard, which was mm-hmm. distributed by 20th Century Fox here in America. So you get that yeah. kind of oblong zero version of the 20th century logo <laughs> just right away. It's a marriage of, you know, the imagery of the stage curtain, an inherently cinematic image that evokes not only current movie making, in the year 2001 when this was released, but history of Hollywood. So still yeah. we're kind of getting this collision of different eras all together, and just a way to kind of like creatively draw your attention to one of the greatest fanfares of all time. You know, that's Star Wars shit. You're thinking on John yeah. Williams level right now.
1: Mm-hmm. And just to combine all these different eras and making it so theatrical, you know, because it's about a cabaret. It's about the stage.
0: I think the very next thing that we see once the curtain opens up, we see to lose the track. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's like, okay, all right. That's the first character that we meet, played by John Leguizamo, who is, of course, working again with Boz after Romeo and Juliet, I believe he plays Tybalt in that movie, right? It's
1: yes, been too I think so.
0: He's got the great sideburns, and the fucking clock mm. with the pizza mm-hmm. on the handle.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: Amazing. <laughs> what a movie. There's nobody like Boz. Mm-hmm. So we see him, and he's singing the David Bowie cover of the Nat King Cole song, Nature Boy, which is, in this context, he's singing about his memory of the lead character of this, Christian, who is a writer. That song immediately takes us into Christian, sitting at his typewriter, writing presumably kind of like a novel version of his memoir of the events of the film, which we're about to see. So we open a curtain, we hear a song, we see somebody writing, we have these layers of artifice, these layers of framing devices of people who really experience this, expressing it through the art, and then connecting that art, I think. To the film that you're watching, suggesting that the film itself is a retelling, just like his book and just like Toulouse's song.
1: Taking every single type of storytelling and mashing it all together into one flashy extravaganza.
0: And it does so in a really rapid fashion. The editing in this movie is quite wild. We talked extensively about the editing of Elvis, which I think is, I don't want to be harsh on Boulogne Rouge by any means. In Elvis, I think a lot of that is sort of more purposeful. Wild and crazy, and then it slows down the way that we talked about during that discussion. In this movie, it is like smashing images together as quickly and as wildly as it can. So, particularly right here at the beginning, what you're getting is kind of a narrated backstory by Christian, who is, of course, played by Ewan McGregor. And he's sort of talking about his background and how he came to be in the French village of Montmartre, which is where Moulin Rouge is located. And then bringing us into his romance. And the the story of the film, which involves him traveling to Paris to live in the Bohemian lifestyle. He doesn't have much aspiration beyond that, except that he is a writer and wants to be kind of immersed in this art world. And in the center of this art world is the Moulin Rouge. It's a cabaret, nightclub, full of dancers, prostitutes, artists, everybody that lives in the village, but also all kinds of rich motherfuckers who are looking Mm -hmm. to spend money and get their kicks
1: and have some action
0: what we get is you know i I think collision feels like the word that best describes kind of what the first 20 minutes of moulin rouge is like It's the collision of all these different art styles it's the collision of all these different eras and here we have kind of a unique collision where within the moulin rouge you, you hear bohemia espoused a lot because there's a group of people with whom christian resides and works including toulouse including a piano player, including a narcoleptic Argentinian actor, who are, you know, this kind of group of artists. And they represent the lower classes of this neighborhood. And then, of course, we have the upper classes who are kind of coming here to spend money, frank, cavort, all these different types of things. And then center stage, we have two very important characters. Harold Zidler, played by Jim Broadbett,
1: with... Mm-hmm the most manic performance in recorded history
0: ever and then nicole kidman who maybe gives the most alluring performance in film history as satine mm-hmm. french are glad to die for love
1: coming Quiz. down from the ceiling all decked out diamonds are a girl's best friend
0: on the hand may be quite continental Drenched in that blue light. She's never looked better than she does in those close-ups. Which, to, to kind of argue with myself from earlier where I was talking about how chaotic the editing is, up to the point when she is first revealed, the editing is quite wild, throwing all these different images at you. But as soon as she appears on screen, everything slows down, every single character in the room is looking up at her and nothing else. When this movie does decide to chill out, and focus you on just one image, it almost always really sticks.
1: Yeah, the whirlwind comes to a halt, and isn't that what the feeling of falling in love with someone at first sight feels like? We see it with
0: Satine, where she's also sick. In this very, very first set piece, we see her star of the show fall off of her trapeze as we later find out in the film. We find it out during the scene, if you're paying attention to the blood on her hanky, but we later find out that she has tuberculosis. And so what we get really, really early on in this film is a conflict that surrounds performance, art, and commerce, which are all the different types of things that Baz Luhrmann is dealing with in Elvis as well. Here, yeah. I think we're sort of dealing with a more coiled depiction of these things struggling to exist within the same space. And what I mean by that is the bohemian ideals of, freedom, truth, beauty, and love are espoused all over the place. And then this movie is about trying to sell tickets. It's about the exploitation of the character of Satine. How can the play that they eventually put on be a representation of bohemian ideals if it is essentially Duke's production?
1: It's that struggle to exist, trying to have your cake and eat it too.
0: In the very beginning, Christian explains that he leaves London behind because he wants to go and experience this art world. And I think one of the tragedies of this movie, and there are several, is that he gets there and finds that it's, you know, a conniving, capitalistic world, just like any other.
1: Yeah, probably just as bad as London, if not worse.
0: And the nature of his character is that he is so vulnerable, and that he feels every emotion that he has at max volume. And so he goes into this world with his guard completely down, ready to be, you know, fully immersed into this world, fully part of it, and then encounters something that is, I think there's kind of two ways to look at Moulin Rouge, depending on how you end up feeling about Harold Zidler. So you watch Elvis, you're looking at Colonel Parker, you're like, that dude, rot. Hmm. No good. Bad. When you when you think Wretched. about Zidler, is that how you feel about Zidler as well? Or somewhere more complicated?
1: Somewhere in the middle, honestly. Because when you get down to it, he's honestly just as rotten, you know, forcing people to work for sickness until they die. But then there are moments where you can tell he starts to feel regret and tries to atone for himself at the end, but he's still the blood sucking manager at the end of the day.
0: I think one of the things that is really strong about his characterization is that he has a genuine passion
1: for art. He has an appreciation for art. Um, the colonel is just thinking about the bottom line.
0: And Zidler's also thinking about the bottom line. I think that Zidler yeah. is kind of a guy that realizes that he has to live in both worlds. And we see that when during this first set piece, after Satine comes down from the ceiling, we're first introduced to the Duke, played by Richard Roxburgh, who Zidler is trying to set the Duke up with Satine so that Mm -hmm. the Duke will be incentivized to fund the play that they want to put on and and maybe even be kind of a benefactor for the Moulin Rouge. Simultaneously, Toulouse and the boys are trying to set up Christian with Satine so that he can read her poetry (laughs) in hopes to get hired on as the new writer of the same place that they're trying to get the Duke to fund. Spectacular, spectacular. And so there's a a little bit of... (laughs) There's a little bit of mistaken identity where Christian ends up with Satine. Mm-hmm. But what Zidler is doing there in the middle of that mistaken identity set piece is he's trying to be the account man for the Duke. He's trying to win him over, wine and dine him, hey, I got my best girl, smoldering temptress. And then he's also talking to Satine. He's also trying to eventually work with Toulouse and with Christian because he's sort of trying to make it all work out. I think what's interesting is that I feel like he's a well-intentioned character. I don't feel like he's defined by his greed. I think that he's defined by trying to maintain a status quo that is destructive to the people that he claims to love, specifically Satine.
1: He tries to keep the machine running, even though he doesn't notice that the machine is eating people alive.
0: I think that Boz certainly looks at Zidler and probably has a degree of empathy and understanding for that type of person.
1: Isn't Zidler basically a movie director?
0: Where the Duke steps in and becomes the producer. So after Toulouse causes the mix-up, Christian and Satine meet in the big elephant. Nicole Kidman goes through like four outfits (laughs) in about 30 seconds here. It's (laughs) a quick change,
1: quick change, quick change. Boom, boom, boom.
0: Because she's in her, you know, sparkling diamonds outfit. She's in the red dress. She's in the black negligee.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> and we get baby-faced Ewan McGregor. That interaction is like genuinely probably the best comedic acting of Nicole Kidman's career. Where <laughs> <laughs> Christian's trying to like hold it together. She is certain that he is a the Duke. B there
1: to fuck her. So she's rolling around on the bed, smiling, like acting all suggestive. And he's like standing there like a deer in headlights, just no idea what to do. Poor boy.
0: And so he starts kind of vaguely trying to like riff poetry, which eventually evolves into him doing kind of like the spoken word version of your song. And she's like <laughs> getting aroused by that, too. It's
1: the- like, oh, that's her kink. Okay.
0: The moment where he starts belting Elton John's Your Song is a really powerful moment. It's another example of when the camera and the edit slow way down. They just let you focus on first Christian Satine's reaction to him. It's extremely romantic. And I think one of the things that I take away from every time that I see it is when Christian is just trying to talk, it doesn't go anywhere. She misunderstands him. She doesn't feel the connection. It's only when he sings at that top register that he can find himself. and
1: He is an artist, and he can only speak through his art.
0: As I've already said, like he's a guy that lives with his emotions toggled to their most extreme points. So the only way mm-hmm. that he knows how to express art is in the most loud, bombastic way he knows.
1: And that's the beauty of pop music.
0: From here, that's where the Duke... The, mm-hmm. the Duke is unequivocally the villain of this piece. Uh, 100%. The Duke, him and his manservant. Who sneaks around in the corners? I love the performance of the manservant character because every time Duke suggests that he should hurt someone, he looks er- like aroused. Oh my god, I might get to kill that guy. This Jeff gets rules. Some horny. <laughs> <laughs> the perfect characterization of this character is that he leans and he kisses Satine's hands and he's like, The pleasure yep. I fear shall uh-huh. be mine It's Immediately- like a lizard.
1: It's like a lizard, like a slimy little gecko. Ugh.
0: He immediately, basically, announces his intention to be a extremely possessive of her, and like b never try to make her happy. I'm just here for me. You are incidental to the exchange. You are goods yeah. that I'm trading for. And what basically ends up happening is that, well, first Christian is revealed, <laughs> and this is this is kind of like the the, the key centerpiece where each character is really revealed. The Duke first reveals that he's kind of the antagonist of the piece. Mm Zidler comes in immediately, comes up with all these different lies to establish the status quo. Oh, we're doing a rehearsal. Oh, here come Toulouse. Here comes the piano player. Christian's the writer. Blah, 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 blah. And that's him being the director, right? He's putting all these different elements together in this act of deceit. What they end up pitching the Duke is a version of spectacular spectacular that is a self-reflexive meta- retelling of the affair between Satine and Christian that has not yet happened. Mm-hmm. Because the story of Spectacular Spectacular is that there is a courtesan who is being courted by an evil Maharaja, clearly synecdoche for both Satine and the Duke. And there is a penniless sitar player. He literally almost says writer. <laughs> He's literally yeah. is like a penniless ri- sitar player. <laughs> <laughs> and so they tell the Duke a version of the deceit that they are running behind his back as theater and so the Mm -hmm. pitch that they're doing spectacular spectacular is actually set to the tune of what you might recognize as the can-can song Mm -hmm. and that song is called orpheus in the underworld uh which i think is actually like a really neat little meta textual thing The title of that song, obviously it's a Can-Can song, it is related to Moulin Rouge. And then that title, what, you know, the story of Orpheus and Eurydice, the way that that ends, the way that this movie ends is like, the Duke, during the song, asks... And in the end, should someone die? And so right here, we're getting like the entire movie in miniature.
1: It's like a Russian nesting doll. There's just another layer every single time.
0: And all those layers are propped up by Satine's performance, Christian's writing, and his clear passion for this woman during the entire spectacular spectacular set piece. Whenever Christian adds a plot development about the sitar player and the courtesan getting together, he's fucking dead eye fixed on Satine. If you're paying right. one ounce of attention to him, you're like, he's trying to fuck my girl, man. <laughs> like, Somehow it
1: takes the Duke of wild to catch on. Like <laughs> seriously.
0: <laughs> one of my favorite scenes, in the movie happens a little later on satine christian and the duke are going on a picnic the way the scene is blocked is that christian and satine are basically like locked arm in arm and the duke's like oh look a frog and he like runs (sighs) off to the side
1: (laughs) Uh, no one's ever accused him of being smart (laughs) no
0: uh i want to shout richard Roxburgh for being in another important and very tangentially related movie of the 2000s john woo's mission impossible 2 where he plays the the kind of second villain
1: good at playing slime balls
0: that's right one with Nicole one with Tom <laughs> so from this set piece we really kick into the plot of the film Christian and Satine are slowly building up their love affair while the Duke and Siddler are trying to make a deal wherein Satine is the bartering chip for the Duke to then become a benefactor for the Moulin Rouge As it goes along, the Duke does become suspicious, and because of this, he becomes more and more demanding of Zidler. He wants more collateral. He wants the deeds to the Moulin Rouge. He wants it so that if he doesn't get his way, he can really hurt more than just Satine. He can hurt Zidler, he can hurt the other dancers, he can hurt everybody. He's trying to get as much control over everything as he can while all these different things are going on in the background that he doesn't know about. And all the while, of course, they're making a play about the affair that they're having which just
1: (laughs) (laughs) no one ever accused
0: the the duke of being smart (laughs) no one ever accused christian of being smart
1: (laughs) Uh, love is blind
0: (laughs) from there once they've successfully pitched the duke spectacular spectacular and he agrees to fund the show christian goes off everybody goes their separate ways and we get a, a sort of balcony meeting from the elephant to Christian's bohemian hovel. And he climbs up to the side of the elephant and they engage in what is one of the film's great centerpieces. I just want to take a second to talk about how you go from that opening introduction where Jim Broadbent is doing fucking backhand springs to fat Boy slim. pops are marching in to smells like teen spirit to diamonds are a girl's best friend. Boom, boom, boom. Then we're up in the elephant Ewan starts crooning your song, which evolves into spectacular, spectacular, which evolves into the elephant love memory. It's not just that this movie has great musical set pieces. It is that they are great, lavish, five-course meal set pieces, and they come one right after the other, right after the other, to where they're integrated. Your song Mm -hmm. is a key part of the elephant love memory, for instance. And so what that does is it makes this whole sequence of scenes feel like one big expression, where we go from, Satine thinking that she's courting the Duke to feeling very attracted to this person who is not the Duke to the beginning of the Elephant Love Medley where she is using her side of the medley to express kind of a cynicism. I need to yeah. survive. I'm out here on my own. Love is for fools. Whereas he's yeah. over here like, love lives us up where we belong.
1: Yeah, she's like, get that ice start I'll snow dice.
0: Throughout this entire set piece, we see her go from Diamonds are a girl's best friend. To, and I will always love you by Whitney Houston. By the end of the set piece, like right, what a character arc! <laughs> All through music,
1: and one song, and just one song.
0: The medley itself is just, I mean, insanely impressive. I don't think that I could name every artist off of it by memory. Obviously, we've uh, got Elton John. There's David Bowie. We've got Heroes. You've got Whitney Houston. I know Paul McCartney. The Paul McCartney lyrics deliver one of my favorite parts of the medley, it's where nicole kidman goes some people want to fill the world with silly love song it really is such a sweet moment it's really kind of the bit where she starts to pivot away from being cold and rebuffing his advances to like she sort of whispers that line and she yeah. knows right there it's like she knows better but she knows she wants to do it anyway
1: so great and then in addition to everyone we've already listed they managed to sneak in kiss phil collins you Two. Thelma Houston. So, just every single person you can imagine possible who's had like a hit song about love in the past like 40 years of radio prior to this in 2001 all smashed into one like six minute explosion.
0: Where you take two characters from a position of one is attracted to the other in an unrequited way. Not quite unrequited. I think she likes it. But it it really takes you through this arc all the way through these songs, which are all mashed together. So they're not just put together in a way that sounds nice, which in itself is quite a feat, but it's also quite meaningful. To me, this scene, I know that you five-starred this entire film. This scene to me is like a five-star short film unto itself. Like if this was all that existed of Moulin Rouge, it would be Mm -hmm. one of the best films of the 2000s, without doubt, just because of that scene.
1: Yeah, it's already in my personal top 10 for that decade. Every time I look at that list, I'm like, can I put it a little higher? Can I push it up a little higher?
0: That scene, the way that it ends, you basically go from David Bowie heroes into Whitney Houston's And I Will Always Love You as the sort of wrought iron of the elephant begins to like explode into these strands of light. There's this great firework bit where the fireworks are in the shape of the heart the camera starts arcing around the two characters it's like everything dissolves into magic and then it closes back to Elton John your song and it's just oh it's such a powerful sequence
1: and if that sequence is a masterpiece in joy and love and happiness there's a scene much later on in the film that's it's equal in tragedy and hate and violence of course, I'm talking about the tango, Roxanne, by The Police.
0: I don't even like The Police, but this is one of like the coolest movie musical songs ever. That's how powerful Boz is.
1: In that scene, um, Satine is forcibly taken by the Duke, and it's interpreted through this tango with one of the other dancers in the club. And you get the darkest moment in the film, I would say.
0: It's certainly the emotional low point for Christian, and at least for some other characters. Basically what's happened there, that tango is happening between Nini, who is one of the other dancers of the Moulin Rouge, and Mm -hmm. the narcoleptic Argentinian, who is the one that is singing the song. Uh, Nini is an interesting character. She's always a little bit more involved in the plot than I remember. She's kind of like, got a sour little attitude she's very ironic yeah. she's always sort of making jokes when satine falls off her trapeze Nini is aware that she's supposed to be meeting up with the duke later and she's like well i don't think the duke's gonna get his money tonight <laughs> and like <laughs> she's just very sassy like that there's a yeah. moment where basically she lets it slip to the duke quite intentionally during a rehearsal of the play that hey it, does this story seem kind of similar to you why would the sitar player who's poor, get the girl in the end. Why wouldn't the rich, powerful guy like you, Duke? And she's like, you know, poking him in the head, basically, like, dumbass. Yeah,
1: Yeah. she stirs the pot because she's bitchy as hell.
0: The Duke then starts making these demands <laughs> about, I want the play to end with her choosing the Maharaja, and he wants to sleep with her before opening night, because that was Satine's little gambit was like, we shouldn't sleep together until opening night. And He's yeah. obviously growing more frustrated and impatient, jealous, and becoming aware through outside sources that Christian loves her and that maybe she loves him too. Where he's not real sure. And so that culminates in that scene where they go to bed together and they sing tango to Roxanne. My favorite part of that is when Christian starts belting out walking on and just absolutely anguished by everything that's going on. His walk eventually leads him outside to where he actually sees her out on the balcony. And she sings a song to him, which is part of Spectacular Spectacular. It's a secret song between the two lovers where she basically lets him know like, hey, whatever's happening here, I still love you. And so there's Mm -hmm. this, you go right from that sort of pained musical set piece into a moment of hope where then she defies the duke thus kind of setting the conflict further into motion. So it's this real kind of whiplash sensation of like, oh, wow, everything's really dark. Oh, they still love each other. Oh, that means things are going to get darker. Mm
1: -hmm. It's like, oh, there's a little bit of happiness, but buckle up.
0: That one pivots right into probably, I'll be honest, my least favorite musical set piece of the movie. It's when Zidler sings Madonna's Like a Virgin. He invents a last minute lie once Satine leaves the duke. He's presented her with that big necklace of diamonds. Big gaudy fucker. (laughs) And she kind of runs out on him after seeing Christian out on the balcony. And there makes up this lie that she's confessing because she feels like a virgin. Touched for the very first time. It's a very (laughs) clever incorporation of Madonna. Madonna belongs in this movie. Watching people vogue in this movie makes sense. I just don't really, like, of all the great shit Broadbent gets up to, I don't really think he sells it. With that said, the second half of the set piece, When Roxburgh as the Duke starts singing, at Mm -hmm. that point, it becomes pretty damn funny. (laughs) Yeah. There's a particular part where Zidler is kind of wrapped up in a veil and Roxburgh, then has got his cloak going. He's looking like (laughs) Nosferatu going after Isabella Johnny. Just like...
1: The ridiculousness of that moment sells the musical number for me.
0: There's a lot of tonal shifts in this movie. I think that the way that it sort of puts tragedy side by side with romance is something that it's classic umbrellas shareboard <laughs> yeah. the bridges of madison county the age of innocence all my favorite love stories are like this all my favorite love stories are just about making you feel the max amount of romance and then peppering in this bitterness that kind of makes it all feel plex and rich what moulin rouge kind yeah. of does in addition to that is it adds a layer of silliness it adds a layer of comedy some of the yeah. comedy, I think, works really well. This is one of the instances where it's like, we just went from the tango to Christian reaffirming their love into Finn Prodbent's going to be very silly for a second. <laughs> and to the movie's credit, it largely moves through those tonal shifts extremely effectively. Partially just because it moves through everything so fucking
1: quickly. Yeah, it doesn't give you the time to stop and think, hey, wait, isn't this a little weird? It's like, no, just keep going.
0: It's all part of the show. The show must go (laughs) on. Must go on. That's the thesis. Of course, that leads to the big production. The Duke has made his ultimatum. He wants his ending. The courtesan is to marry the Maharaja at the end of the play. Who knows how it's really going to go. Christian's basically been old yellered off because Ziggler has convinced Satine to do so. By finally telling her that she's dying, by the by 20 minutes left to go like hey you're dying you should just do the show and tell Chris- christian to get out of here or the duke's gonna kill him
1: then neither one of them noticed her constantly coughing into her handkerchief all the time <laughs> or like what
0: that final set piece which is spectacular spectacular <laughs> has a lot of great moments i think one of the things this movie underplays for how big and maximalist it is i wish we <laughs> saw more of it You start, and it's basically you're watching the opening scene of Moulin Rouge again. You're watching Nicole Kidman as Satine, as the courtesan singing. Bathed in blue light. A remix of Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend." Really think that there was room to like fit in more of that performance let me see the argentinian playing this character because there's so much fun meta layer stuff that you could have done there that i think kind of gets left on the table in favor of christian's kind of last-ditch effort to figure out if Satine loves him
1: i think it could have been there but i think it would also run the danger of making the movie too overstuffed because it's already on a knife's edge as is you know, walking across that tightrope of being too meta. That's true. So I think focusing just on, I mean, having the number and then focusing more primarily on Christian, trying to figure out, does she really love me? And can we get that happy ending from this musical back?
0: That's one of the most powerful bits of acting by Ewan in this entire film is when he confronts Satine. And he, what ends up happening is basically he's confronting her backstage and saying like, if you never love me, let me pay you the time we spent together of course she's told him to get away because she loves him and she wants to protect yeah. him he's being chased around by the servant backstage who's sort of like brandishing a pistol and running around in the context of the performance Zidler as the maharaja is trying to reveal the two lovers together and does so of course christian has taken over for the argentinian in that role he's wearing his outfit the argentinian has passed out somewhere above where they are on stage and he delivers the line that is in the script thank you for curing me of my ridiculous obsession with love throws money at her feet walks out the door there's a line that Toulouse, as the sitar is supposed to deliver the only thing the greatest thing you'll ever learn is just to love and be loved in return which he fucking hollers full volume yeah that's when I believe she sings the kind of secret lover song and then they, then they go into the reprise of your song and she sings the song just like she did on the balcony. She chooses the ending defying the Duke and telling both the sitar player and thus also Christian that she loves it. And it's this great, powerful moment. He's walking out just like he did during the Roxanne set piece, basically locked and staged exactly the same way.
1: So it leads into the finale. Siddler throws the Duke out. Really great moment where you see the Duke finally get his ass handed to him.
0: The Duke is trying to get at the pistol that the manservant dropped so that he can shoot Christian, basically. <laughs> right <laughs> at on which stage. Point, at which point he gets decked in the face <laughs> by Zittler. You see the, go- the gun doinks off the Eiffel Tower. <laughs>
1: <laughs> he punches him so hard he might as well be in the afterlife.
0: Satine so chooses her happy ending. They defy the evil powers of capitalism. Everything is great. Fireworks. Happy ending. Satine dies. They
1: can conquer capitalism, but they can't conquer Well,
0: In the end, death comes for everybody. It makes it kind of part of the greater genre of romantic literature, this idea of tragedy and embracing the time that you have with people. I think that the sense of brevity... <laughs> Of their relationship is something that's really powerful they only really know each yeah. other for a short period of time you know right. it doesn't feel like this goes on for more than a couple weeks
1: yeah at most maybe no more than two months
0: i think that's kind of reflected in the pace of the film too you know about the way that you just sort of lightning blitz through everything happening it's like one big absent drunk party
1: starring kylie minogue
0: i'm the green fairy that's With the sound of music. <laughs> And so you're, you're just kind of thrown into this chaotic whirlwind of emotions, performance, lies, feelings of jealousy that, that kind of skitters and ends in this dual note of like pure love, pure tragedy.
1: And I think that's the reason why it continues to resonate even 20 years later. I think if you look at like all the best love stories, not just in cinema, but like across art in general, it's almost never a happy ending.
0: I think this does a really good job of getting both sides of that, letting you feel both sides of it, letting you understand, you know, here's the tragic part, but here's the good part. You know, the way that Portrait of a Lady on Fire is tragic is like the status quo is maintained. These two people Mm -hmm. never got to be together and they probably never got to live incredibly full lives. In Moulin Rouge, they choose each other at the end and then they're torn apart like every other couple in the world by death. There's a real beauty in that. They get to retain their agency. They aren't forced to live false lives, which I think is so yeah. important to what this movie is about. Particularly the character of Satine trying to find her own integrity, be somebody that doesn't just have to work so that people will like her and give her money and make her, you know, loved and a star big song throughout the film is one day I'll fly away. That song is always a really somber note for me. Of course, I find Moulin Rouge very exciting when I'm watching it. The Moulin Rouge as a theater is presented to be an exciting place. The neighborhood is presented to be exotic, romantic, something that people that live as far away as England hear about, romanticize in their heads, leave home to go visit. And the main star, you know, the Judy Garland of this world, wants nothing more than to get away from.
1: Which really just adds to the undercurrent of tragedy running through the whole thing, because even if the most popular star is unsatisfied, then what's the hope for everybody else?
0: To be as cynical as the character of Nini, right? Or to just yeah. live destitute like to loosen those characters. Like that's basically that's what you've got. To maintain yeah. your integrity, you you kind of become sort of sour and bitter and jaded. Or you retain that sense of, of romance and integrity by kind of being distanced from the machine or as distanced as you can be from it, which right. the, the movie shows to be very complicated. We look at Elvis. I hope I'm not spoiling Elvis on the non-Elvis episode. I hope everybody knows Spoiler what Spoiler alert, Elvis. Elvis
1: dies. <laughs>
0: <laughs> There's, like, that movie, Elvis succumbs to the machine. He doesn't get to make the choice for himself, and so it is just pure tragedy. Whereas this, which has the same element, you know, this, this movie, when I watched it this time, as you know, yeah. specifically, as our listeners may not know, I watched the Powell and Pressburger film, The Red Shoes, for the first time this year. Impossible to miss the parallels. Once you've seen the movie, you, you you can't miss how similar these two things are. When you look at Nicole Kidman's bright red hair, her big beads of sweat all over her forehead, and the way that they end. The way yeah. that they are, not just the way that The Red Shoes, the film ends, but the way The Red Shoes, the titular ballet is. What that is about. It's about, you know, wearing these shoes and the cost of ambition and performing so hard you die for art. Mm -hmm. The words. Victoria
1: Page will not dance the dance of the red shoes tonight or any other night.
0: Divine holding a pistol pointed at the audience. (laughs) Who wants to die for art? (laughs) And that's, that's Boz. I think every movie he's made has this kind of element of tragedy to it. He. He's always looking to give you, I think you can almost compare it to Scorsese in a way. I think during our Elvis conversation, I yeah. even did compare it to The Wolf of Wall Street, where mm-hmm. he wants to give you something big and explosive and dazzling. And a lot of times, what's important is the undercurrent of sadness, misery, a lack of fulfillment that we see in The Parties of the Great Gatsby that we, of course, see in the tragedy of Romeo and Juliet, the tragedy of Moulin Rouge, the tragedy yeah. of Elvis.
1: And everything might be shiny and glitzy and super fun, but the system is rotted from the inside out. And it's just barely being hidden by that facade. And
0: juxtaposed with that, it's like every performance is just to get something that you want out of another person. But behind that performance, there are real people and real emotions, real connections that they make to one another. So that everything that Satine does isn't just lip service and lies. She goes from courting the Duke, to loving somebody entirely different.
1: Yeah. What starts off as transactional complicates when actual human emotion gets caught up in it. And that, in a nutshell, is the tragedy of this.
0: And I think that's a really good way to ruminate on artistic expression from any era of a film in 2001. All these meta elements of expression aren't just there for fun because he's a creator. They're there because they're expressing... What it was like for him to make Romeo and Juliet, I assume, right. on some level. And yeah. They're talking about what the entertainment business is really like. And I think taking a look at performance, transactions, and contrasting them with real passion is something that is timeless and also exists really well within its era. And i have just, by its era, I mean from like 2001 to now. I like think yeah. it's something that's going to age really well, but it's going to age as something that was a really sharp reflection of our times.
1: If you get down to it, it's just as scathing as something like Mahalan Drive.
0: The film that I thought of when I was re-watching it is another one that I watched recently for the first time, which is uh, Hu Shao Shen's Flowers of Shanghai. Flowers mm-hmm. of Shanghai is a movie that is entirely set within shanghai pleasure dens basically there are these prostitutes who men pay to court they don't even really have sex they they just have ongoing romantic trysts like relationships with each other and it's all kind of about that tension between what is real love what is the love that you pay for and how can you define all those types of things and how yeah. complicated that is and i think this is that but like a pop song version of it that yeah cranks all the emotions really high, and just plays it really fast and really catchy.
1: And to tie everything together with the meta element, the story now exists in a new form. It's a show on Broadway that's touring across the country. It's actually playing here in Los Angeles right now at the Pantages, I need to see that somehow. But again, updating the story for a new version, they bring in songs from the 2000s and the 2010s, and now you've got Pink, Lady Gaga, Rihanna, Beyonce, all feeding into the story in a new form.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. Um, okay, here's a question for you. Mm-hmm. Is this the best Nicole Kidman?
1: Ooh, uh, <laughs> I would say the best Nicole Kidman comedic performance. Overall, I would have to take a look back at some of her more dramatic stuff. Specifically because I have a real attachment to the first season of Big Little Eyes.
0: I would definitely agree best comedic performance. I might, I might say it's her best star performance if i can make that kind of a distinction
1: best leading role versus like supporting role
0: where she's just a marquee name she's just a movie stars movie star in this movie no movie has ever capitalized off of that presence that she has better than this i think the best film she's ever been in or at least my favorite is probably eyes wide shut she's Mm -hmm. a pretty minor part okay she's not a minor part she's just not uh she she doesn't have the type of screen time that she's getting That's what I'm, She's yeah. kind of passive. While Tom Cruise is going through things, what you see are sort of memories of her. Yeah. And, I mean, she's got some fucking amazing work in that film. For me, the 2000s, clearly her best decade, like, just wall-to-wall heat. I will go mm-hmm. to bat really strongly for her performance in Lars von Schreier's Dogville, which I know is not mm-hmm. a movie that you care for very much, but I think that lead performance is the thing that holds it together. We'll say that.
1: Yeah, yeah, she's great in it. I would also point out, even though maybe a little overhyped, her performance in The Hours, which got her an Oscar, I think also genuinely great.
0: The other one from this decade that I really like a whole lot is Jonathan Glazer's Birth. Jonathan Glazer's the director of Under the Skin. Birth is like a weird little movie that was very polarizing when it came out. I I don't even really want to talk about the concept of it, but if you're listening to this and you have the opportunity, you haven't seen it, Go watch it because it is some of the best acting from the Cole Kidman of, of that entire decade. I mean, to me, yeah. that's on par with like Watts in Mahan Drive. It's on par with
1: Coupeur and the piano teacher.
0: Great one. Perfect. Is this the best Ewan McGregor?
1: I would say so. Yeah. If only because I prefer him and more lighthearted stuff.
0: I think I would maybe make the same distinction as we did before. It's kind of like his best comedic performance. For me, I think I would go train spotting. His Mm -hmm. physical performance there, the way that he embodies that role, there's a degree of difficulty because one of the other members of that ensemble, Ewan Bremner, who is playing a smaller character, actually played Mark Renson, which is Ewan McGregor's role, on the stage for years in Scotland. To be able to kind of step in, become the lead character, the entire culture knows you as this character, basically. When, yeah. like, the guy who kind of made it, the role that it is on the stage is, like, right next to you, that's pretty yeah, impressive. This is. is kind of, like, this big ascendant period for you and McGregor. Like, he just did, he's coming off of Star Wars, where he plays Obi-Wan Kenobi in The Phantom Menace. He's got this movie. This is probably my number two, though,
1: mm-hmm. after. And even then, that's a phenomenal, like, top two for anybody. Yeah
0: his run of films here is actually kind of important because he goes from Shallow Grave, which is a Danny Boyle film, right into *Train Spotting*. He does The Pillow Book, which is Peter Greenaway, Cook, Thief, Wife, Lover. Really weird film, very erotic. And then a little later on in 1998, he plays in Todd Haynes' Velvet Goldmine, which I think is like a critical piece of him getting the part here. I think his role in that film kind of critical to all the stuff that he's putting into Christian he's kind of playing uh, an Iggy yeah. Pop analog there who has like a gay romantic relationship with that movie's version of like David Bowie and also <laughs> that movie's Christian Bale who's playing a gay twin <laughs> Todd Haynes we love you God bless did you this is completely off topic did you see that they're sorting the Todd Haynes Barbie Karen yes. Carpenter movie yes that's the greatest news of all time
1: <laughs> I can't wait to see it in 4k
0: Oh my God.
1: Speaking of uh, stop motion animation, everyone should watch that. Yes. Would you call this the best movie musical of the 21st century?
0: <sighs> okay. So what, are, what would we put up against it? I know that West Side Story is probably the most renowned and strongest recent contender, in my opinion. Yeah. I think that even though it's not really a movie, we would have to compare it with Hamilton just for how big that got and the fact that there yeah. is kind of a movie version of it that you can watch yeah and i would say i like this more than either of those for sure
1: yeah and then i'm not sure if these people still exist but i'm sure there's people who will still go up to bat for la la land
0: yeah not for me i love whiplash a lot that's my damien chazelle film of choice
1: i guess la la land would be mine although based on what i've heard about babylon i think that one's probably going to end up being mine but i will say that like Musicals in the 21st century have had it rough, especially in the last two years. There's just been a real glut of shit.
0: Things like Tom Hooper making <laughs> Blade <laughs> Miz and Cats or Bohemian Rhapsody, even like Rocket Man, which I think is kind of an improvement in the musical biopic genre, is like okay, it's fine, it's decent. This movie's version of your song is better than any Elton John thing in the Elton John movie. <laughs> that Elton John produced.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's right.
0: There's a couple music movies like that are just like, A Star is Born that I like quite a lot, but I wouldn't call that a musical. That's the thing. Is right. Like, Inside and Davis, that's a music movie. And I love yeah. it, but it's yeah. not a musical.
1: Those are dramas about musicians.
0: Hail Caesar has a dance number in it with Channing Tatum.
1: It's called, great.
0: Yeah, just fucking elite stuff roger deacon shooting that set piece that's obviously not a full musical but that's a great musical scene yeah i i think it's pretty clearly Moulin Rouge.
1: could we get the cohen brothers to direct the musical because i have a feeling they would knock it out of the park
0: we have to get them back together first they're like doing separate things ethan cohen is making a movie with the most ridiculous title of all time right now
1: and then joel's out here adapting shakespeare
0: the Ethan Cohen film is a Russ Meyer inspired action sex comedy.
1: Perfect. I'm sold.
0: <laughs> we look forward to watching it soon. Any other thoughts on Moulin Rouge?
1: I guess the main takeaway I would want people to have from this film is to experience life to the fullest, give into your emotions, feel the art at every single level of your spirit and your soul. And that will help you connect with this movie and other Maximus movies like it in a way that you might not have been able to feel before.
0: I think how I put it during our Elvis conversation was that just a little bit of generosity goes a long way with Mm -hmm. Baz If you show up with a bit of an open mind and say, hey, it's okay that this movie kind of wings the tone around from comedy to tragedy from one moment to the next. If you surrender yourself to his process and his style, What you're going to be treated to are three of the very best performances of its decade that are really Mm -hmm. finely tuned, delivering on characters in this, you know, really sharp, really funny, really sexy, really sad, really touching and uplifting and just hits all these different emotional notes at max intensity. And if you just give into it a little bit, you get to be taken on one of the best roller coasters there is in cinema.
1: Let your guard down and just ride it out.
0: It's the best possible advice while watching any Boz Luhrmann film. When I go watch Romeo and Juliet, I'm going to just try to clear my mind as much as possible, sit as close to the screen as I can and
1: mm-hmm. just
0: soak it in. Just let it go. Cause it's the only way to, it's the only way to really get what you're supposed to get out of a Boz Luhrmann film is to experience it. That's I yeah. feel like I said it eight times during the Elvis <laughs> conversation is just like, <laughs> you can't try to write down what a Boz Luhrmann movie is about. You can only
1: experience it
0: that's the power of his work
1: yeah you have to feel it
0: and in order to feel it you kind of gotta let your guard down you gotta Mm -hmm. throw caution to the wind just let harold sidler fly you in through the door of the (laughs) Moulin rouge Cole, this has been great it's been a lot of fun to talk about and i look forward to talking to you again soon
1: looking forward to it
0: around me and i see it isn't so (laughs) no some people want to fill the world with silly love songs well what's wrong with that i'd like to know cause here i go